0: Welcome to the Pro Life Team podcast. I'm Jacob Barr and I'm here with Dr. Joe Malone. And today we're going to be talking about the history of sex education and talking about where we would like to see it continue towards, which is, which is a, a healthier sexual integrity education viewpoint. <laughs> So, Dr. Joe, I'm excited to have you on the Pro-Life Team podcast once again. For those who don't know you as of yet, would you introduce yourself as if you were speaking to a group of pregnancy clinic directors?
1: I would be glad to, Jacob, and thanks for having me again. Um, Yeah, I've come to the pregnancy care center um, movement, I guess, just the last couple of years. and. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Um, I have a background in, with a PhD in health uh, with a specialization in sexual wellness. So I'm really on the preventive side. I'm really on the side of educating young people, particularly young women, um, about the things that they can do to prevent even getting into the situation of having an unwanted pregnancy. So um, I work with a lot of pregnancy care centers, uh, staffs, in helping to educate them on all the Biological background to how uh, heterosexuality works. So, I'm really glad to be able to provide that, and it's been something that God has blessed me with. I really feel it's my mission in life.
0: Awesome. So, tell us about the 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 history, or you know, go ahead and go ahead and get the conversation started with what you want to talk about when it comes to the history of sex ed and your vision. Yeah, go ahead and get us started with this conversation.
1: Okay. That's great. Yeah. It's always a pleasure uh, talking with you, Jacob. I always appreciate it. Sex ed really has come to be something that I think uh, is negative in a lot of ways in our country and around the world, actually, because it's been used to um, sexualize, literally, literally sex, sexualize our young people in, uh, in, for a purpose that most of us don't, wouldn't agree with. Uh, there's a whole history to it that I'd like to get into. And are you ready for me to get into it at this point? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's go for originally, it. Originally, yeah. okay. Well, originally, sex ed uh, in, in the United States, um, you know, starting, you know, let's say in the 19, early 1900s, it had a, a, a noble purpose to it. It was basically called hygiene. And, you know, I'm old enough that I can even remember this approach when I was a, a young person. And what they did was teach the different things that, the STI dangers and different things that you could get, uh, problems that you get from being sexually active as a young person. They actually taught morals and that type of thing and ethics. And uh, the consequences, like I said, of, of um, you know pregnancy, of course, and, and, and all those STI, STDs. So it, it, it was uh, actually a good thing to begin with. But up to, to about 1960, uh, it continued on that pattern. But around between the 50s and 60s, there was a change and uh, it started going in the direction of, I think, really promoting sexuality amongst the students. And the reason that happened, I believe, you know, we, we have to kind of look outside the United States and because around the rest of the world and along with the progressive movement in the United States, which, you know, kind of started in the late 1800s and was just getting started in the early 1900s uh, in the combination with these folks I'm going to mention, uh, We've ended up in the place that we are today with comprehensive sexuality education that really is is rather than preventive, it's more of a promotive of casual sex. But before I get into the people in that line, of the historical line, I should point out that the first modern um, sexual revolution, in the way that we think about it, Happened in the Soviet Union when the Russian Revolution um, brought about the Soviet Union, and starting about 1918, and uh, in the in the 1920s, basically Soviet Union, at least the early to the mid 20s, they had all kinds of things that were, you know, the first time in history. They had, they had abortion for the first time in his, history. They had uh, abolition of marriage, just civil civil um, partnerships. Uh, nudity was practiced widely in the Soviet Union. You could get divorced just by making a statement that you were no longer married. Um, there was a bunch of illegitimate babies being born, for instance, in Moscow. Over half the babies in the early 1920s were in Moscow were being you know, illegitimately born, so um, out of wedlock, I should say. So the interesting thing is they tried this really modern, first modern sexual revolution, in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the communist uh, approach to things, in the early 20s, and it lasted until about the mid-20s, and at that point, uh, because of the problems that it caused, because of the way it was tearing up society, they started rolling it back. And by the early to mid-1930s, so it lasted for maybe 10-ish to to 15 years, um, everything was rolled back, everything, all all of the... um, well, I guess you say liberalizing things that they had done, and so it ended up being a failed experiment. So that's something we need to keep in mind from the beginning. But some people around the rest of the world uh, started taking up this idea and 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 starting instituting in other countries. And the reason I'm laying this out is because it ended up in, in ended up in the United States eventually and, and West Western Europe. So uh, a young uh, man named at the time George Lukacs. Uh, he was a Hungarian uh, communist, and he was the commissar of their of culture for their their country. Uh, the country didn't last very long, um, but he tried to institute sex ed there as a weapon. It was a cultural weapon to try to break down Judeo Christian um, moral ethics and really the marriage and the family. And all the people, uh, men, I'm going to name off here, have that in common. They all were. In, their goal was to break down the Judeo Christian basis of society so george lukacs uh, is his program in hungary only lasted it started in 1919 only lasted about a year a year to two years because uh, the hungarian communist government got overthrown but he was one of the first ones to put forth the idea that you could use sex as a weapon particularly sex ed as a, as a weapon to sexualize the young people and destabilize the society Around that same time, nineteen twenty, early early nineteen twenties, 1920 itself, uh, Antonio Gramsci, uh, Gramsci, I should say, um, who was an Italian, put forward the idea that you could use same kind of thing, uh, you could use different things to destabilize society, and um, it, he had the the term the march, the long march through the institutions, take over the institutions of a society, and then you could. Through cultural Marxism, you could change the society rather than just trying to take a frontal approach and take over the society, you know, uh, through power. So between Lukacs and Gramsci, um, the idea of cultural Marxism basically came about. And again, sex and sex ed were major weapons that uh, especially Lukacs put forward as being important. Fast forward a bit to the mid 1930s, and there was a gentleman named Wilhelm Reich, and he's a German. Um, again, uh, the, all these people have in common that they're, uh, communist, uh, is their Communism is their philosophy. He was a German Communist, and uh, he and several others of this school they called the Franker School, and called it that, that after it had been initially called the Social, Socialist School. Because the the name didn't uh, resonate very well with a lot of people, uh, but the Frankfurt School, he and they ended up leaving Germany because it was becoming Nazi Germany, and they were being threatened with, with coming to the United States, coming to Columbia University particularly, and bringing their ideas with them. He's a, a gentleman that wrote the book, the original book called The Sexual Revolution, eventually. But originally, it was called "Sexuality in the Culture War." That's what it originally was called before it was interpreted in, into English, and it was the subtitle is along the lines of "For Forming the uh, Modern Socialists," person. So again, those type of things should be taken note of as far as the intention of these uh, people that we're talking about. He he ended up uh, being put in prison eventually and dying in prison. But his ideas. Um, lended on after him into the 50s and 60s as we talked about at the beginning he's he's for instance he's the gentleman that came up came up with the term sex positive so it's all the way back into the 1930s that that, that came, came up um then the next one on the list would be alfred kinsey and a lot of people have know about alfred kinsey and again american product but also uh somebody who wanted to tear down the judeo-christian uh basis of our society he was at England at a university in the nineteen thirties. In nineteen thirty-eight, he created a marriage class. They call it a marriage class because they wanted to be accepted. And it was. They became a very popular class. But really it was about sexuality. It really is about sexualizing um, young people. And again, in his in his research, which he used eventually to um, write two books, two two like uh, seminal books for this whole whole subject um uh sexual behavior in the human male was the early one 1948 and the, the second one on females same title except female uh was 1953 the research subject that they used were people that were for in prison and uh, homosexual folks and just uh, and of course he's famous for um experimenting on little kids and down to even babies infants uh, as far as how uh, how many orgasms they could have, what age they could have them and that type of thing and his, which again would qualify for child abuse I believe these days um, but he tried to establish the idea that people are and children are particularly are sexual from birth that's a, his, a very famous phrase of his and also another thing another word that he coined was sociosexuality which means how inclined you are to casual sex so again um he promoted uh sexuality amongst his staff um they pretty much had open relationships uh his wife was having sex with one of one of the uh other a graduate student to begin with and then then uh, one of the other professors and so um, he was a homosexual himself, uh, Alfred Kinsey. And s- even with all of that, even with the uh, tainted, um, you know, not re- representative, um, subject pool for his research, the American universities, which again, starting in the late 1890s, there had been the progressive movement really getting into the universities, uh, land grant institutions and all that came about. And so kind of this communist movement that we're talking about, these communist folks coming in from outside the country combined with this progressive um, situation they had going on, and then people like Kinsey, and ended up coming out with supposedly authoritative textbooks that were um, the basis of what we use today for, in most cases, they use for for sex ed. And so again, you can kind of see how... uh, you can see how uh, corrupt it was kind of from the beginning and that had political motivations from the very beginning. One more man I will add to this list. Um, that man named John Muddy. Um, he was, again, he goes up into the 1960s when kind of this, this kind of all coalesced and really started changing things in society. But he's famous for, uh, there was a pair of uh, twin brothers, from canada uh, called the reimer twins that had an unfortunate accident when they were being circumcised uh they were trying the newfangled approach to it with an electric an electric type of a uh, machine i guess you'd say or instrument to do the circumcision with and and it malfunctioned and one of the boys penises was burned it's literally burned off and so uh, the parents were, and this is again the early to mid 1960s. The parents were at a loss to what to do with the twin boys, and one of them without uh, normal male um, anatomy. So they they got in contact with this John Money, and he said to them, "I have the absolute solution." And he said, "You know, it not how you know it isn't biological what what a person becomes as they." mature from a baby to, you know, to a a child and and into adulthood. It's how they're raised. And so, you know, it's it's socially constructed and we hear sex is socially constructed. And he's the one that created the term gender. So that's where that came from. And also uh, gender identity and then sexual orientation. He came up with those those terms. So what he proposed to the parents was to raise um, the little boy that, had had this unfortunate accent as a girl and then the other one had normally as a boy and it was a kind of the perfect um experimental situation for him because he had two identical twin um boys and one you know it wasn't one situation one's to the other and he could prove his social construction of sex and gender uh theory which was again be- had become and still is today uh as far as higher education goes uh, probably the predominant um belief on how sexual sexuality occurs is he had a chance to raise him her, him and they started calling her uh, calling him a, uh, her uh, and gave her a, a girl's name i think it was brian or something like that to begin with and they changed it to brenda put her put him in dresses and um uh gave him hormones you know gave him female hormones and that type of thing and did everything they could to uh, make this little boy who grew up with this uh think that he was a girl even to the point of having his twin brother and he as as they matured, uh encouraged him to have like sex sex uh practice sex sessions and that type of thing kind of uh imitated sex sessions which again is along with uh kenzie's practices extremely um just bad and uh, just wrong and really really probably criminal these days so um he he wasn't taking uh the boy that was supposed to be brenda um about 12 years old started tearing his clothes off his skirt off and wanted to wear pants and wanted to you know do all the things that boys do play with play with boy toys and that type of thing but but um, money John money hid that from the public. He was he said that everything was going well and and she he was becoming a she and that type of thing. So again, this is kind of what today's uh, gender um, the, the transgender situation is is goes back to. Uh, eventually, in in their twenties, I think it was I think it was late twenties, maybe early thirties. Uh, the twin that. That didn't have the surgical problem uh, committed suicide um, first, I think, by an overdose, and then the one that did have that was made. to And but by the way, he by the time he was about seventeen or eighteen, he had he had uh, come out and said, "I'm not going to live like a girl. I'm not a girl." And and so uh, he went over to all the different things of the boys, you know, male clothes, and 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 ended up marrying somebody as well. And so it looked like he had, was going to have a successful life, but the damage I think had been done earlier in this, in their lives. So both of them ended up dead in their early 30s. Uh, the 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 boy that had had the sex change against his will, you know, I mean, when he, he didn't even didn't even know what was going on, he um, he ended up committing suicide by gun, I believe, using a, a weapon. And again, John John Money, uh, he's the one that came up with the um not along with sexual orientation gender identity he came up with the term sexual reassignment surgery and so that's again where that comes all the way back in the 1960s so with all those people that i named off um as kind of the progenitors of sex ed it's no wonder that sex ed has become what it has with um A sexualizing approach and and really a corrupting approach uh to to the young people that are in school now along with this you know there are a lot of other things societally that um contributed to a sexualizing uh environment in 1960 the hormonal birth control pill was invented so again that took a lot of the a lot of the um restraints off of sexual activity in in in, uh especially the young people In '62, the Supreme Court removed prayer from schools. Which, again, you know, they're putting sexualizing sex ed into schools, and they're taking these things out. So, in '62, the prayer was removed. '63, the Bible uh, was removed. The ability to to read the Bible in class and in in the school. Uh, Secus, which is the um, acronym for the for the main sex ed program it's uh, sex information and education council of the united states that's what ccas stands for it moved into the schools in 1964 so after you know after the other things i mentioned the bible and prayer being taken out and then in 1990 i'm sorry yeah 19 uh i'm sorry 1970 no-fault divorce came about in the united states and so again we're moving more and more away from traditional courtship traditional marriage traditional family and making it easy to um get divorced and then finally in 73 the one that we all are very familiar with roe versus wade uh made abortion legal across the country so so to, to 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 sum things up um really the sex ed that was changed from what it originally had been in the 1900s to 1900 or so to 1950 with the hygiene approach and the um, ethics and morals being taught and the the bad consequences of extramarital sex being taught it had changed over by you know as as we went into the 70s it's gradually just on to this from the 70s on up to today it has become i think a really destructive force in many cases especially the idea of you know, going along with Kinsey's idea that kids are are sexual from birth—that's just that's just crazy. As a scientist, you know, I can tell you that, that the hormone structure of children it, it is anywhere near being ready to uh, deal with sexuality. That they aren't sexual beings at that age. And again, we could go all the way through the different the changes as as children go through and into puberty and past puberty and all that. But um, it's, it's really, really a crazy and destructive concept, so what I would propose, I'm going to stop here in a minute and get your thoughts, but what I would propose is that we, because of the way it is, because of high-speed high internet pornography and um, the way that porn has become so ubiquitous and, and porn addiction is extremely common these days, and there's reasons we can go into on that in a minute, if you like, but um, because of the, the fact that uh, porn ends up being the main sex ed, sex educator for these young people, if we just leave everything alone, particularly at the upper grades, like the sophomore, junior, senior high, in high school, um, I think something needs to has to be done uh, in this area. And sex is such a powerful reinforcer; it is the most powerful uh, natural reinforcer. Um, and the most natural, um, most powerful natural reward um, that humans experience. So it's a powerful uh, weapon, and these guys were right, it's a powerful weapon in their hands to um, degrade young people with. But I believe that there's a way to educate them where they need to be educated and uh, do it in a way that leads to what I would call sexual integrity education. I think there just needs to be sexual integrity education as a replacement for the sex ed and just one other thing i want to get your thoughts if you don't mind um it's a scary thought but 53 percent of of boys and 37 percent of girls believe that porn realistically portrays sex so they there's a a large number of them that think that porn is a realistic portrayal of, of sex so I believe that we have to speak into that and we have to speak truth into it and science and, and you know, the scientific truth, um, but I don't think we can stand idly by, but I think we need to recognize the history of, of this and realize that it has been used for nefarious purposes and um, we have to, I guess you'd say, redeem it to some degree and, and get, it, get it going on the right track and uh, be able to be helpful to these kids to have a good life and, and not, not be destructive to their lives. I'll let you. what Do you have any, any no, thoughts no, that was.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for just laying out this, this really excellent executive summary of the history of sex ed. And it's interesting to see the roots from communist countries and these countries in the early part of the 1900s And, and how this has reflected things that we've gone through later on in that, in that century and things that we're even going through today are still, it's interesting to think that things that we're going through today, um, started with these seeds or these previous, um, programs or these previous people and ideas, whether they're in the U S or in Russia or in Germany or in, in Hungary. Hungry. It's really interesting. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see what happened to their societies and these countries um, because we're not all on the same timeline. We're on different portions, and we might be able to get a glimpse of what happened to their history to understand and be better educated on how to you know, respond to our own
1: timeline in our country. It sounds like that's what you're trying to point at, perhaps. Oh exactly. Yeah, we could definitely benefit from their experience and from knowing about them and also to understand their motivations, you know, because um our motivations are 180 80 degrees different than theirs is because we want to desexualize. We want what do you want? We want to save sex with these young people where it should be saved for which is their marriage and the successful life they can have and building their lives around a family, and, and all all of the things that many of us that have experienced it know, are some of the most um, rewarding things in life. So, so yes, uh, it's, it's it's a matter of taking the uh, science on it and the knowledge and putting it in front of these young people in a way that will encourage them to practice chastity for one thing, uh, coming up to marriage and practice uh chivalry on the port- part of the the young men and uh, again just uh respectful um respectful relationships really between each other and and the exciting um and just uh other no other way to put it romantic adventure really that 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 uh courtship should be between a young man and a young woman i mean it's just there's nothing quite like that feeling of being in love and um just all of it—the nerves, the the exhilaration, the infatuation—and and, uh, without the sexual, without the sexuality, you know, without without the sexuality to the point, particularly of orgasm, that is so common today with alcohol culture.
0: So I've got a bunch of questions, or oh. a couple of questions to ask you. Well, I like to start off with sure. when it comes to the word gender. How would you, how would you say it's defined, or how would you define? that word gender and how would you compare it to other words that we might consider such as um, someone's biological sex and how does that compare to the word uh, gender what are your thoughts on
1: that word i think that gender um and as it's commonly used in our society is not a helpful word in a lot of a lot of ways Uh, i think it confuses and muddies the water with a lot of young people um scientifically I think that they need to be taught that between 96 and 97 percent so that's leaves about three to four uh, percent of people that aren't but not about between 96 and 97 percent of people um by uh self-report are heterosexual and so we're talking about the the large um majority well, supermajority of the population is, is uh, heterosexual, and you know um, their biological sex is absolutely dictating their their uh, how they feel and how they how they, how they identify with themselves. There's only a three to four percent that where there's a, que- a, a question otherwise. So, I would like to have young people realize what a large percentage of them. There's no question uh about it the physical process carries out you know creates them into my and probably our opinion our um way of looking at it god's process clearly makes them a young man a young woman by the time they're 20 years old uh the other three to four percent there seems to be um processes that go on where they end up end up with same-sex desires uh, and then also in some cases transgender um a transgender approach or dysphoria i guess you'd say uh that's a tiny 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 percentage though of the of the overall even even this even of the three to four percent the transgender population as far as actual scientifically um proven uh, uh, actual Physical uh, physical situation of them having those thoughts, be having maybe feel like a female but having male genitalia and vice versa. Tiny percentages scientifically have uh, uh, actually shown that to be the case before the kind of social contagion of transgenderism has struck. Now those numbers are something along the lines of one in ten thousand live births end up having a situation where they feel like a they're they're male genitalia but they feel like a female so again female female prototype is is the way we all start off in the womb before about eight weeks of gestation then when if it's an xy chromosome baby then um the testes of that that little boy start putting out testosterone and and it organizes it is creating, uh, help creating the genitalia area and that type of thing, and in the early, again, the early stages of the pregnancy, the first trimester. And as the tr- pregnancy goes on, almost always, because again, it's a one in ten thousand uh, where it doesn't work this way, uh the brain in the later parts, the, the the second and third trimester, the brain is organized as a male organized brain, and so the the baby is born and it's a boy by uh by his genitalia and it's a boy and his brain but one in two thousand times um there seems to be uh an anomaly an aberration in the process where for whatever reason that um hormone exposure isn't the same at the end of the pregnancy as it was at the beginning so you come out with male genitalia and uh, female thinking and feeling brain the other possibility um uh, female that that feels like you know uh somebody who has female genitalia and after they're born feels like they have a male brain that's very even more rare it's one in 30,000 so so just on the average we need between the two you got to have a one in 20,000 chance of having actual um physical situation that develops where you have a dysphoria true dysphoria um, you're born into one body, and you feel like your brain feels like the other other uh, sex. So, in answering your question, I think keeping the keeping just sex, keeping the two sexes as as the predominant uh, approach and the predominant um, explanation of how almost all of human sexuality works, I think that that's the, the way to uh, to do it. And then I think where there's individual uh, variation as in all of the, all the other varieties other than heterosexuality i think they need to be explained on a case-by-case basis but to take the whole society as we've been doing and kind of wrapping wrapping uh all of the or, or much or most maybe of all the attention on the three to four percent that are not heterosexual and kind of i'm leaving all of the Ninety-seven percent, ninety-six or ninety-seven percent of the heterosexuals just, just kind of fend for themselves and and figure out figure out uh, how to live life on their own. I think is a really really bad approach. So so mostly I would say just focus on sex because almost everybody that's all you have to worry about is are they a male are they a female and again for the, the the small percentage that aren't don't fit into that category then I think again more of a case by case basis and uh, approach it as the need arises
0: so yeah so um if we have three percent that are considered in that dysphoria section or grouping and and then but biologically maybe it's one out of ten thousand that seems to reflect a huge impact that our society has been pushing uh this mental confusion onto um it it seems like about 99% wouldn't have arrived in this space without being pushed you know only one out of 10,000 may have arrived in this space uh under a different set of circumstances
1: perhaps yeah that's kind Uh, of that's what i would say uh is happening in most cases is the social contagion uh with the with the big numbers you know of Especially when you we kind of need to separate Jacob out a little bit. Uh, the three to 4% again is all of it LGBTQ and any, anything else that they classify under there. So the, so the T part of that LGBT is a tiny, tiny uh, part of the three to so, 3%. So the dysphoria really is a tiny, tiny number in reality. Um, but with the way things are, where we have in some high schools, maybe. Ten, 10 students that think that they're transgender, the, the odds of that happening in reality, physically physical reality, they're really really tiny so what you just said is accurate. Um, it's social contagion in, in, in most cases the thing is, is that some of them a few, a tiny percentage of the, those those young people are actually going to be dysphoric, you know, so I guess the point I'm, I'm making is that the tiniest of numbers is is the ones that are actually dysphoric as far as uh transgender but again you have your three-ish three to three-ish percent that are not transgender dysphoric but they are lgbt or LGBT, lgb i guess it would be so uh lesbian gays and and bisexuals so there's a a, tinier, it's a sm- that's a small percentage and it's a tiny percentage of actual transgenders if that makes sense yeah
0: um can you speak to Brain development. So, like when, when you know, at a gay pride parade, there could be a child, or you know, at at, at these cultural pushes. Like, I saw a clip recently of um, Elmo from Sesame Street talking about gay pride. Um, there's, I saw a video of a gay pride parade, and there was children. Like, one person was carrying a baby and a, you know, in a backpack. Uh, another person, you know, another one's like a small child holding the hand of someone. So, and then when it comes to like middle school, you know, 12 year olds being voted to take hormone blocks or hormone ads or lighting them up for surgeries, serious series of surgeries. You talk about brain development and when it comes to the youth, all the way down to the youngest of ages, when it comes to influence. All the way through until the brain is fully developed and what it looks like for a 12 year old to be presented with this information compared to maybe someone who's 26 or 21, you know, 21, meaning almost fully developed when it comes to brain development or, you know, near the, near the final stages. I'm I'm assuming, and then maybe 26 could be considered to be, you know, arriving at a fully developed brain for some people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the brain doesn't fully develop, particularly on on males, until twenty five or so. I mean, there's arguments that it, it's not until about thirty that it fully develops on, on some males, and that's what because the male males develop slower overall than the females do on average. Anyway, you know, all the way through both physically and and I guess you say mentally. Um, so they they generally end up being taller and bigger as well so uh there's a reason for that as far as the development goes development pattern goes um and we're not the only species that that happens and there are lots lots of other species where the males develop slower and bigger and stronger than the females do we end up with about 80 percent more we meaning males end up with about 80 percent more muscle fiber in the upper body you know 50 percent more in the lower body so there's a big difference in usually an athletic ability and that's why you see a lot of the things that we're seeing now, but uh, basically, the brain yeah, it's it's got two growth spurts really from birth until about the age five or six. And in during that time period, there's going to be way, way over the number of neurons, billions of extra neurons, um, in play. And then what happens is the ones that get used, and um, you know, there's learning that goes along with them, they, they get they're exposed to different things they get they're kept and the other ones are pruned um and so early child life uh, exposure to different things is extremely important as far as how they develop there's literally windows of development um that if you don't hit them if there are right are the right inputs during that time period then that particular skill or that that, that particular ability can't can't develop like even for instance, like like sight and sound, uh, hearing, hearing language and speaking language, and and seeing things. If they're, you know, certain, they've done experiments where they've kept them in dark rooms. You know, where they're going through this, and they don't see normally, and so they are not able to see and in cases hear uh, things normally going for the rest of their life. Uh, then the other big uh, growth spurt of the brain is from uh, adolescence let's say 14 15 to about 22 23 and same thing uh life experience uh makes them prune certain areas uh, of the brain and, and and create some synaptic connections and not create other synaptic connections literally synaptic connections are what uh we call learning uh we uh, eventually that becomes us as as our worldview and our 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 personality who we are there's some there's a fair element of personality that's uh heritable that we get from our parents but then the rest of it is again our experiences so to your uh the uh point about adolescent particularly young young child you know uh 10 12 year old and through adolescent exposure to different um stimuli the they're they're most vulnerable to addictions at that age those younger ages if they get into the addictive substances uh, or, or behaviors uh they'll be most uh prone to get a lifelong addiction to them they don't have much of a prefrontal cortex because and what that is is again the judgment and discipline part of the brain and again the brain it uh it matures from back and lower to front and higher. And so the front and higher is where the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex is. It's the last part of the brain to mature. And also in the prefrontal cortex is this very important neurotransmitter called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. It's the main um, neurotransmitter hormone in the brain th- that uh, gives humans the ability to break on, put brakes on certain behaviors and to have discipline and, and executive function and planning and that type of thing so these these kids that you're talking about these let's say 10 12 15 16 17 they don't have much of a prefrontal cortex because it has has not matured yet which is a problem because it's like uh, in, in class i always told my students my college students that uh, when you're younger in high school you, if you were a car you know you had plenty of gas pedal and no brake because of the prefrontal cortex but there's this other the whole other element to it is the gaba system gamma aminobutyric acid again that is the main inhibitory system uh neurotransmitter system in the brain it, it, it doesn't it doesn't come online until the rest of the prefrontal cortex which is so there's a double reason that little kids and then on up into adolescence really need to be protected from things that would corrupt their thinking pattern and would um, uh, get them mm. going in the wrong direction because they're so vulnerable to it at age. And that's why porn, for one thing, is really, really destructive and really can have a lifetime negative effect if, if kids are exposed to porn and if they get addicted to it. Uh, uh, the addiction of porn and food for that matter, um, you know, highly palatable food, with young kids like that has a effect on them that's believe it or not a population level um probably more destructive than some of the hard drugs we think about because uh heroin uh meth uh just take alcohol throw throw all the drugs we think of as being the the big addictive drugs they only end up addicting about 10 percent of the population that that try them because uh they're they're unnatural they have hijacked the reward system in the brain which again the reward system as i i should add that the reward system in those young kids and up through adolescence adolescence probably the the strongest time for the reward system of of all and testosterone in boys hits its peak at, at age 17 so only about 10% that try any of the classic addictive drugs get, uh, get addicted to them. On the other hand, with highly palatable food and especially porn with boys, uh, we're looking at 40 to 80% of the population that try it, that end up getting addicted to it because it's a natural, it has a natural, um, satiation override to it, uh, a binging, a binging over, um, element to it where, with another unnatural reward um we have these built-in brain capacities to shut it down because it's unnatural with sex and food which are our natural drives we don't have that same uh shutdown mechanism in the brain and so that's why we end up with so many especially boys um boys have about six times the chance of being addicted to porn than the girls do and then uh, with food addiction, so many of the girls end up, end up with that, you know, I always talk to my students again about, you could tell a lot by just looking at, at different societal institutions The uh, eating disorder clinics have about 90% of, of females that are showing up to those. And the sex addiction clinics have about 90% of males that are showing up to those for help. So um, we really yeah. have to be careful. What we, what our young people are exposed to, because they're so vulnerable at that time of their life, because of the the brain um, qualities that that we've been discussing, and that's a great question uh, that every parent should know about as far as um, the importance of trying to protect your your young people from the exposure to these things, because they have such a potential for addiction and destruction.
0: Wow! Thank you for yeah, really diving in deep on that. That was that's really helpful to know as a parent, and, and I can imagine pregnancy clinic directors will benefit from understanding that as they're leading parenting classes and having uh, connections or influence over local school um, school boards or school um, educational decisions. Um, yeah. So I think we've got about three more minutes for this. Podcast, and I'd like to ask you to, yeah, maybe cast a vision for what you would see as desired for this sexual integrity education shift from the traditional sex education that's been used as a we- weapon in some ways against Christianity
1: or, uh, yeah, people with faith. Yeah, that's a great question and and, and a great um, a great goal to aspire to. Uh, I would like to see again uh, it be it be segregated to the upper grades. First of all, I think that again, Kinsey's idea that we're we're sexual from birth, I think, is a extremely destructive uh, idea. So I think the younger ages should be um, you know especially like up through sixth, fifth, sixth grade, up into where you start getting into the middle school left alone, let them be, uh, have their innocence, let them be little kids so as they want to be. And that matches up with their hormones and their brains. Middle school starts issues start arising. And I think that, um, you know, at that point, I think that the basic things along the lines of differences between males and females and, and that type of thing, I think need to be brought, brought out. Um, again, going into the upper years of high school, uh, I think that what I mentioned earlier, um yeah uh, the course the um the anatomy and and the physiology and and uh the the biochemical structure of all of it needs to be explained to them and but along with that relationships you know how to create healthy relationships how to as a young man treat a young woman with respect you know what chivalry means um and on the part of both of them, but particularly the the, the young woman, modesty and uh, what her, you know, the sight of her in certain the way in certain um, ways that she portrays herself, how that how that can affect the the boys having the huge amount of testosterone they have at the time and very little prefrontal cortex and GABA GABA system in their brain to to st- stop them from from having impulsive thoughts and that type of thing so i think that the educ uh, that education needs to be put it also needs to they also need to realize that leading towards a successful marriage sexual integrity is so important because it's really what drives everything and particularly the uh, young man towards you know making the effort toward court a, a young woman uh having uh the drive to actually commit at maybe an earlier age which historically again our our ancestors have gotten married more around age 20 especially on the male side of things and then even you know down into the teenage years for the female side of things on average looking back in our in our history and you know there's a reason for that physiologically because females peak fertility is between age 19 and 29 males is 24 to 26. So having babies, being married, first of all, having babies in in their 20s, especially their early 20s, is extremely beneficial. Uh, Even, you know, a a woman who has a baby closer to age 20, her first one, and compared to one that has the baby, their first one at 30, has half the chance of getting breast cancer in your lifetime as the older older birthing woman has. So the patterns from the past, uh, I think, have a lot of wisdom for us, and I think, helping our young people to get on the pathway of again chase relationships um positive regard for the opposite sex not only that but just uh respect and actual um admiration because again both sexes need we need each other and both of uh the sexes uh do amazing things are able to do amazing things in this whole process so Educating with sexual education, sex, sex, sexual integrity education, educating toward those marriage outcomes, I, I believe this is the important thing, because again, marriage has a huge benefit to the individuals, you know, like, like as a couple, then as their children are born, and then uh, their town, their, their state, their country, in the, and the world, basically, so... Marriage is really underrated, undervalued, Um, but teaching sex education, sexual integrity education, which is what I'd like to see it change into, um, with the purposes of promoting great marriages and great families, I think that that is something that's sorely needed in this country and really around the world.
0: Our sponsors include Heritage House, Patriot Insurance, and irapture.com. The Pro Life Team podcast is a ministry of iRapture.com.
2: If you would like to explore making a donation or becoming a sponsor or have a recommendation for who would be a good guest on the podcast, please contact us at hello at prolife.team. Shepherd, I shall not be in want. I shall He makes me lie down in the green. He leads me by quiet. blue. Yeah, the walk through darkness, tallies. You are me, I'm me. Your protection and guidance are comforting me.